Try something new. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity to, uh, to give your word this morning. I pray that, uh, that you'll just speak through me. Lord, I just pray that you'll uh, show yourself to us in a way this morning that, that we've not seen and that we'll just come away with, with a deep awareness of you this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are visiting with us this morning, we are in a, uh, a seven-week journey through uh, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, so that's really exciting. And just a little bit of a recap of where we've been the past couple of weeks. Um, the Apostle John, the last living apostle, has been exiled by Rome to this island called Patmos, and he's exiled there because of the testimony of Jesus. He wouldn't quit preaching Jesus, he wouldn't quit teaching Jesus, he wouldn't quit talking about Jesus. And Rome didn't like that. Once they decided that Christianity wasn't just another form of Judaism, they decided that, hey, we need, to, we need to get rid of this Christianity thing. We don't like this. It's taking worship away from the emperor. It's taking worship away from the old gods. So we're, we're going to punish them. We're going to persecute them. Uh, this is during the, the time of the emperor uh, Domitian. Not a, not a good guy. Uh, in fact, Domitian, usually uh, Roman emperors would be deified after they died. Uh, the next guy who came along would usually come, come up and say, hey, let's, let's, make, let's make this guy a god. We'll offer sacrifices to him. We'll do all this. But Domitian, uh, this, this, this dude was so full of himself that he decided to declare himself a god while he was still alive and demanded that people come and declare that he is Lord and, and burn incense to him, make sacrifices and he doesn't like Christians. So they, they try to kill the Apostle John. They try to basically uh, burn him in oil. He doesn't die. So they exile him to the Isle of Patmos. And it's there while he's worshiping that uh, Jesus appears to him, the risen Jesus. And he appears um, looking crazy. I mean, he's got a... He appears like this. It says... Uh, it says, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. How would you like to catch a vision of that? That's, that's not something you see every Sunday morning when you come to church. But that's the vision, or at least that's what John saw, and that's how he described it. He couldn't describe it any other way. What he's seeing is what, what Daniel saw in Daniel when, uh, when he saw a vision of the Ancient of Days. John is corroborating that vision and saying, hey, this is, I saw what Daniel saw. I saw the Ancient of Days. And Jesus says to John, hey, I've got a message for the seven churches that are located around you in what is modern-day Turkey. And write this down and send it to the churches. Every church was, had a letter addressed to them, but then every church would also read every other letter that was written to the other churches. So John writes these letters to the seven churches in modern-day Turkey in what was a postal route around the area and what's really interesting 
is Jesus tells John to write these letters to these real churches in history in modern-day Turkey. And would you know that modern-day Turkey, the exact places where these seven letters were written 2,000 years ago, it is one of the least reached people groups in the world. I mean, these people had books of the Bible addressed to them, and you can go there today and you can't find any history of the church. They don't know anything about Jesus. It's kind of weird. But this letter today, perhaps more than uh, all of the letters except the letter to Laodicea, really has a lot to say to the American church. Uh, first, we looked at the letter to Ephesus where uh, they, they, uh, they lost the love that they had for Jesus. They did all this work. They did all these deeds, had all these nice buildings, but they were loveless. They fell out of love with Christ. Last week, we looked at Smyrna, who Jesus didn't have any kind of condemnation, words of condemnation for them. He just told them, hey, you guys are doing good. Keep it up because it's going to get harder. We talked about the persecuted church. This morning, we talk about the compromised church. And I, I think that's just as good of a word of, as any to talk about the American church this morning. Compromised. If you got your Bibles, we're in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And this is what it says. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Anipus, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Now this morning, I'm going to talk quite a bit about history. hope that's okay. We can't understand these seven letters to these seven real places if we don't do a little bit of historical work. Because remember, we talked about it in week one, if, if you take the Bible away from its historical context, you can make it say whatever you want to say. And that's not good because this letter, these letters can't mean something to us today that they didn't mean to the church 2,000 years ago. So we're going to talk a little bit about Pergamum. And we've got some pictures up there. Um, that one, yeah. Pergamum, that's Pergamum today. You can go there. And outside of Ephesus, uh, Pergamum is about the, uh, the, the best city that you can go to today to kind of see it's still around. And as you can see, that's, that's kind of the Acropolis. That's the top of the mountain, really high point of the city. And you can see they had a little, uh, I say little, it's big. It was an amphitheater. And to this day, you can stand at the bottom of that, and you can whisper to somebody. And if you're sitting in the top row, they can hear exactly what you're saying at a whisper. A lot of times we think, man, those people 2,000 years ago were a lot smarter than they are. I mean, these people built a theater into a mountainside without any kind of amplifiers or microphones, and you could hear a whisper at the top of the mountain. That's crazy. I think they were pretty smart. Now, P Pergamum was a wealthy city also. It was a very safe city, military, mili military speaking military, Whatever. From a military point of view, it's a very safe city. Because that's the that's spot you want. You want the high point. You want to be able to see people coming from all around you. You have a big advantage there. Um, 
they had a library that was second to Alexandria. They had about 200,000 parchments there, which was a lot. And they had that until a guy named Mark Anthony decided to give it to um, a lady named Cleopatra as a wedding gift. Hopefully she liked to read. Um, and Pergamum had a ton of temples. Everywhere you go, you'd have a temple. They'd have, uh, they had a temple to, to Dionysius, which was the, the, the goddess of wine. So you can imagine what happened when, when you worship Dionysius. A lot of people getting drunk, a lot of people, a lot of sexual escapades going on. Not good. They had a temple to Trajan. In fact, this city was the first city to build a temple to a Roman emperor. They had a temple of Athena. They had the temple of Zeus, which we'll talk about in a little bit. What's really interesting, if you can go to the next picture, they had there in the bottom, you can kind of see it with the pillars. They had what's called an Asclepion which was an ancient kind of hospital of sorts. And what would happen there is, is they would worship the, uh, the Greek god of healing, whose name was Asclepius. And uh, you, got, you can go on to the next slide here. His symbol, they, they would literally worship the symbol right here, which that, that might look kind of familiar. They literally this symbol of Asclepius was a snake on a staff, and they would worship that. You've probably seen that today. It's kind of interesting where some of our symbols come from. Now, what would happen in this, uh, in this Asclepion, in this hospital, is people would come with injuries or with sicknesses. They'd come at night. They'd go in this underground entrance, which doesn't exist anymore. They would drink a little sedative. They would fall asleep on the floor, and then, at night, they would fill the halls and the floor with all kinds of non-venomous snakes. And the snakes would crawl over you. And if they crawled over you, if they slithered over you, if they touched you at all, then supposedly, in the morning, you would be healed. Of course, you'd have to, uh, you'd have to talk to one of their priests and uh, tell them what was going on, and then tell them if you had any kind of weird dreams. They'd interpret the dreams and then supposedly they would heal you. It's kind of interesting that they uh, worship a guy who's represented by a snake. Because you remember where a serpent is first discussed in the Bible? Genesis 3, 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals that the Lord God had created. The first time we see a snake is the, is the fall of man where the, the snake talks and tries to... Uh, tries to kind of corrupt Adam and Eve, and it works. And the snake tries to get us to corrupt what God's Word says and to change it and to twist it. Good thing that doesn't happen today. So it's no coincidence that this healing God that they worship is represented by a snake. It's just funny. Now twice in this letter, John is like, hey, I know where you live. I know where, Sa where Satan has his throne. You're standing up for me in the town where Satan lives. And that's no coincidence. This letter was written to a town that was a center for, for it was like a demonic stronghold. That's no joke. I think we have the next pic, picture up there. This is, uh, that right there was excavated from Pergamum in the, in the 19th century by Germany. That's the altar of Zeus. 
And some people from Germany came, and they took it piece by piece back to Berlin, and they built it um, how, how it would have stood. And in the middle of that, which I haven't been there, so I don't have a good picture of it, but there's, there would have been an altar that was, would have been the shape of a cow. And people would have been sacrificed inside of this cow. It, had a, it was a huge cow, and it had a door on it, and they, a person would be thrown in there, It'd be closed, and it had a, uh, out of the cow's nostrils and out of his mouth, a little trumpet was piped through there so that when um, a person would scream, it would, sound like a, uh, it would sound like a cow roaring. And a person would scream because under the bowl, they would light this huge fire. And as the bronze of the bowl heated up, a person would scream during the sacrifice, and it would sound like the cow was coming alive. A lot of bad stuff happened at the altar of Zeus, and many people believe that the throne that would have been there is the exact throne that, that uh, Jesus is talking about here where it says where Satan has his throne. Now, a little bit of history for you. This is, this is really interesting to me. In the 1930s, an architect who worked for a young man by the name of Adolf Hitler decided uh, he showed Hitler this this altar, this, this, uh, this throne. And Hitler commissioned his architect to make his stage identical to, to, this, uh, to this building here, which I think we have a picture of that. And it's not a very, really good picture, but Hitler modeled the stage area that he would use to give his Nuremberg lectures uh, before and during World War II, where ultimately, during one of the last ones, he would talk about you know, cleansing Europe, and he would talk about what eventually would lead to the sacrifice of six million Jews. All from the same stage setup that Pergamum had to, to honor Zeus, Hitler, Hitler spoke. It's really interesting. So, between worshiping the snake god Asclepius and, and worshiping Zeus, this city had become a major demonic stronghold. Satan lived in this town. Satan was master in this town. And Christians obviously already have nothing to do with that. And remember, from these first two letters, we've seen as Jesus is talking to these churches, he walks among the churches. He's not distant. He sees what's happening in the church then and today. Nothing surprises him. And look at how he introduces himself to the church in Pergamum. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. This isn't happy Jesus, okay? I don't know if you know much about swords. I'm, not a, I'm clearly not a sword expert. I want to thank Josh for letting me uh, use his sword here. But Swords are interesting. I can use a sword to, to protect somebody. You know, somebody coming at me, I can protect. I can use a sword to cut somebody's head off. I can use a sword to, to strike somebody down, depending on... Depending on the context, a sword can be used to protect, defend, a sword can be used to kill or to bring justice. And it's in that context that Jesus has come into this church in Pergamum. He's, he's bearing the sword. And that's interesting. And the sword imagery is not accidental, as we will see here in a little bit when we go further into this text. None of the metaphors that John uses 
or illustrations that John uses are accidental. They all, have a, they all have a strong purpose. And like we said, many of them are tied to the Old Testament, such as this one. But Jesus is about an attack mode because some of the church in Pergamum are compromising the truth of the gospel and then acting like nothing's wrong. Like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I follow Jesus. And I also worship the God and I go down here to, to get healed and I do all this and I offer incense to Caesar and I declare Caesar as Lord. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And so Jesus asks the question this morning. He says, are you worshiping the snake on the staff or are you worshiping the Christ on the cross? But before he gets to his critique, he offers some praise. We already read it. He says, hey, I know where you live. Some of you are remaining true to my name. And he gives this guy named Antipas. Now, we don't know much about Antipas. Um, what we do know about him is extra biblical. It's outside of the Bible. But uh, church tradition tells us that Antipas was, was a guy in Pergamum. He may have been a pastor there. And he wouldn't, offer, he wouldn't declare Caesar as Lord. He wouldn't uh, burn incense to Caesar. So uh, tradition has it that he was placed in that bronze cow that we talked about and was sacrificed because he wouldn't deny the name of Jesus. So Jesus says, hey, I know about this guy. I see this. I know that you're suffering, and you're, you're not giving up on me. You're, you're claiming my name. So he says, that's good that you're claiming my name, but some of you are claiming my name, but you're not doing my deeds. You're, you're acting like the world. So he goes on in verse 14. He says, nevertheless... I have a few things against you. But did you notice how, how he brought about the critique? He, di he didn't just start in with the critique. You know, he, he started with what, what the church was doing well. He offered them praise before he got to a rebuke. Maybe that's something we should emula emulate in our own lives. Anyway, he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Oh, man. That's not good. So he says, while some of you, like Anipus, are, are all in, you guys won't deny me. You're, you're in it for the long haul no matter what happens. Some of you are looking a little too much like Rome around you. Some of you are little, looking a little too much like America around you. You guys remember... Uh, Remember the story of Balaam? It's, it's a story that doesn't get preached about too often. I've never preached about it. But I, I went through and I, I read the, the chapters this week, and I just, well, partly I had to laugh, and then partly I just had to shake my head. Because Balaam, he's, he's an Old Testament, I'll call him a false prophet. He's somebody who, who knows the truth, but decides he likes money more than the truth. But basically the story of Balaam is this. Uh, there's a guy named Balak. He was king of Moab at the time. 
And he was afraid that Israel was getting too big. This was during the time of the wandering after the Exodus. He thought Israel's getting too big and uh, we're not going to be able to, to take them over if they should decide to fight us. So I want to curse them. So Balak, king of Moab, he hires this false prophet called Balaam and says, hey, I will give you a ton of money if you curse the Israelites. So Balaam thinks, well, at first he's like, no, you know, I can only say what God gives me to say. But then the money, the money tempts him. And he kind of, he prays to God and God says, no, don't, don't go to them. I don't want you to have anything to do with them. But Balaam likes money. So he decides, I'm going to go, even though God's telling me not to really go. And so he gets up to, to go and, and do this, to go meet the king. And he gets on his donkey. And maybe you remember the story. But uh, the donkey is more uh, perceptive than Balaam. And the donkey sees the angel of the Lord with this huge sword. And he's holding it. And the donkey won't go anywhere. So Balaam starts beating the donkey, kicking the donkey, doing whatever you do to this animal that won't move. And he just won't do anything. The so finally, he, he starts wailing on him with the stick and with his legs and doing whatever he can to get him to move. And finally, God opens the mouth of the donkey, it says. And the donkey starts talking. And the donkey's like, hey, wh what have I done to make you beat me these three times? And Balaam's like, you won't go anywhere, you stupid donkey. And then finally, God opened the eyes of Balaam and he looked in front of him. He saw this angel of the Lord with a sword, and he's about to get struck down. And the guy's like, the angel of the Lord, who many thinks the pre-incarnate Jesus, says, look, you know, if not for your donkey stopping because he saw me, I would have killed you and let your donkey live. I'm standing here to oppose you because you're going down a dangerous road that I don't want you to go down. And this, your donkey has more sense than you do. But he knows Balaam's going to do what he wants. So, hey, he says, go, but you're only going to say what I tell you to say. So Balaam goes to Balak. And uh, three separate times, Balak's like, hey, let's go up on this hill and I want you to, to curse the Israelites. And so time after time after time, Balaam tries to do that. But out, out of his mouth only comes blessings for the Israelites. Much to the dismay of Balak. He's like, hey, I paid you to, to curse the Israelites, and all you're doing is blessing them. You're not getting any money. So Balak goes off, or Balaam, excuse me, he goes off on his way. But he, uh, he, must, he must think in his head somewhere that, you know, I didn't, I, I want my money. There must be some way that we can get these Israelites to, to compromise, that, that we can bring about a curse. And like I said, he's a false prophet. He knows what Scripture says. He knows who the, the God of Israel is. And he remembers, oh, they, they've just agreed to do this law that's conditional, where, where God's going to bless them as long as they obey God, and he'll curse them if they disobey God. So he, he must have gotten it in his head, hey, I, I know how I can get God to curse the Israelites. You know, we'll, we'll get him to curse them by using his own words against them. So he, he must have went back to Balak or something because all of a sudden they send these Moabite women to the Israelites. And you get to Numbers chapter 25, and we don't have time to read this. But what happens is uh, these, these Moabite women, they're probably attractive. They come in, they start tempting the Israelites. They say, hey, come to one of our feasts for one of our gods. So the men of Israel go. 
They participate in all kinds of sexual immorality. They worship this other god. And out of nowhere, this plague just comes on the people and 24,000 people die. God brings swift judgment. He, he brings the sword down. That's the story of Balaam. And here's what it is. Here, here it is in a nutshell. God takes sin seriously, especially in the context of a church. He takes sin seriously, so we should take sin seriously. Angel of the Lord appears to Balaam with this big sword to warn him before he goes to meet with Balak. It's interesting that in Numbers 31, just a few chapters later, Balak, or excuse me, Balaam gets killed with a sword. He, he gets put to death by Israel with a sword. So it's no coincidence that, that Jesus comes to uh, this church in Pergamum and, and he's holding a sword. Talking about Balaam, who was put to death by a sword because he didn't repent. There's no wasted image in the book of Revelation. It's no coincidence. Jesus is saying, look, if you do not want the fate of Balaam, then you better repent. If you don't want me to strike you down with this sword, you had better repent. You'd better change your mind and go a different way. Because I'm standing here with this sword, and I'm, I'm not defending you. I'm about to attack you. Because I take sin that seriously in the context of a church. So we ask again, are you worshiping the snake on the stick or the Christ on the cross? Because you can't worship both at the same time. He also talks about the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which we don't know a whole lot about, uh, other than the fact that they were most likely a group of people who, uh, who took Paul's words about the freedom that he had in Christ and kind of applied it in a rather loose way, saying, oh, we have all kinds of freedom in Christ. We can say we're Christian, and we can do all this other stuff. We can go do all the sexual stuff. We can do this this drinking stuff and go to these temples because we have all this freedom in Christ. Obviously, that's not what Paul was talking about. And like I said, these two criticisms are directly related. You can't serve Christ and Satan at the same time. You're serving one or you're serving the other. I mean, does that ever speak to the church in America today? Because man... You know, it's, it's not enough to claim the name of Jesus on Sunday and then claim your own name the rest of the week. You're either all in or all out. You can't ride the fence with Jesus. Uh, that's what he's saying here. In Colossians uh, chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 1, it says this. He says, he's talking to the church. He says, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Pay attention to this. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, 
But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Who are you worshiping this morning? Because Jesus is saying here, very strongly, that there is no room for compromise in the church. You either follow me or you don't. And we can't rationalize sin. We talked a little bit about the first time the serpent appeared in in, uh, Genesis, and that's exactly what he tried to do. Oh, did God really say this? Oh, surely he didn't mean that you would die. Surely he meant something else. Surely you can take a bite of this fruit and you'll be fine. God just didn't want you to know everything like he does. God may not have your best interest at heart. Surely you can eat this. Man, we'll rationalize ourselves all the way to hell. Should be proud of of this church. You know the the leaders here take take this kind of stuff very seriously. As should all churches. We take uh, very seriously who who teaches our kids, especially. And all churches should. Jesus is standing here and he's saying, "Look, you guys, you're saying you're Christians." Some of you are even dying because of it. But but the way some of you are living while you say you're a Christian. I can't tolerate. And you, the church can't tolerate it either. Because if the church doesn't do something about it, I'm going to come and pass judgment. Like I said, this isn't the happy Jesus. This isn't the Jesus that you stick on your dashboard that has a bobblehead. Hippie Jesus that kind of does this as you drive down the road smiling. Peace and love, Jesus. This is the risen Christ with a sword in his mouth. And in a different way, saying, let's look, if you don't want your church members to have judgment passed on them, you repent. Repent. Change your mind about what you're doing and do something different. Remember, he's talking to the church. He's talking to supposed Christians here. It says, if you do repent, here's what will happen. You're going to get to eat some of the hidden manna. Now, hidden manna is referring to the manna that was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes what? Presence of God. Manna symbolizes God's provision. God's going to feed his people. also symbolizes you know, the bread of life, which is Jesus ultimately. And God's saying, look, you will gain the right to have me provide everything you've ever wanted or you've ever needed. If you repent, I will give you everything that you want. None of these other gods, none of these other temples, none of this other life that you're living can offer that. And he also says, I'm going to give you a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. When you get a new name in Scripture, it's because God has completely changed your life around. God does it. We don't. Abram became Abraham. Saul became Paul. There's countless other examples. 
But this is intimate language. Jesus is like, look, if, if you overcome, if you repent, if you turn back to me, I'm going to bless you in ways that you can't even imagine. You're going you're gonna to get a, you're gonna get a new name, and you're going to get to be in my presence for, for all of time. And it sure beats the consequence. Because I, I'd rather get a new name and you know, get some of this hidden manna than have this sword strike me down. I, I think I, I'll choose the first choice every time. But it's obvious that some didn't because all of these churches have been wiped out from history. Let's not let ours follow in that trend. Let's pray.